my middle child, Cooper, uh, is named after the 18th century British hymn writer, William Cooper, uh, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but pronounced Cooper. Uh, We had mercy on Coop and uh, spelled it with the double O, but nonetheless, he is named after William Cooper. Uh, From the first time I heard the story of William Cooper, it gripped my heart uh, because Cooper was a man severely flawed, who struggled mightily over the course of his life, but whom God chose to use for his purposes. Uh, In 1763, Cooper was set to be promoted to a prestigious position within the British Parliament. But on the eve of that promotion, as he prepared for an exam that would have uh, been the prerequisite for that position, he had a complete mental breakdown. Uh, He tried to commit suicide three different times, and after the third time was admitted into St. Albans Insane Asylum. Six months into his stay there at St. Albans, uh, Cooper found a Bible lying on a bench. He opened it as it happened to John 11, where he read of Jesus's compassion toward Mary and Martha and his power to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. Cooper would later write, Oh, that I had not rejected so good a Redeemer that I had not forfeited all his favors. Cooper's heart was softening, but it was not yet changed. Several weeks later, he again opened the Bible, and the first words he saw was the verse from our passage this morning, Romans 3, 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Uh, Cooper wrote of that moment, he said, Immediately, I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of my justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. My eyes filled with tears, and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. After leaving St. Albans, Cooper moved to the town of Olney, England, where he struck up a lifelong friendship with the pastor of the church there, the former slave trader, one of the most significant Christians of the 18th century, John Newton. Newton tenderly and patiently cared for Cooper during his frequent bouts of depression over the rest of his life. Together, they combined their poetic gifts and their love for hymnody to produce a hymnal called Only Hymns. And there in Only Hymns appeared for the first time Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. In Cooper's hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Please turn your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 is on page 941 of the Bible underneath your seat. Friends, if you need a Bible, that Bible is there for you this morning. If you don't happen to own a Bible, you need to. So take that Bible home and begin to read from it this week. If you've been around uh, for the last six weeks or so, friends, you know the context uh, that we're moving into of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, uh, because we've been walking steadily through Paul's argument, haven't we? That began in chapter 1, verse 18, that ran all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, namely that everyone on this planet shares the same basic condition right? Both Jews and Gentiles are sinners and rebels against God, and therefore we deserve God's wrath, his settled, fair, just response to our rebellion against him. As we saw a couple weeks ago uh, from chapter 3, Paul's description of humanity is just incredibly bleak, isn't it? None is righteous. No, not one. Our thoughts, our words, our behavior, It's all infected by the terminal disease of our sin. There are no exceptions. We're all sinful. We're all guilty of offending our God. And Paul writes, on the last day, we're going to stand before God speechless when the time comes to defend ourselves. We'll have no excuse when he rightly condemns us. The picture that Paul paints is impossibly 
dark. Humanly speaking, there's no light. There's not even like a little flicker of hope, is there? God will judge righteously on the last day. All the universe will rise up and applaud him as he does because he's entirely in the right to judge us. Well, friends, perhaps seeing again this this kind of pitch black backdrop of our passage this morning will make Romans 3, 21 to 31 come alive afresh in your hearts. Look at the first two words of Romans 3, 21. They are so sweet. But now. But now, friends, as it did with William Cooper, Romans 3, 21 to 31 is a passage of scripture that gives hope to the hopeless. Things were impossibly dark, impossibly hopeless, but now the light of God's grace in Christ chases the night away. Let's read it together, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I have to admit, as amazing as this passage is, it feels just a tad intimidating to preach, mainly because of how it's structured. Because verses 21 to 26 are not neat and tidy and academic, are they? Like at all. Instead, Paul just seems to kind of riff on the righteousness of God that saves sinners. He just piles up layer after layer after layer of gospel truth. The syntax is dense. It's packed and complex, isn't it? One of the difficulties of preaching this text is organizing it in a way that's helpful. So, so before we begin, I just want to take us on a flyby, as we often do of the text, to see the big picture of what Paul is doing here in these verses, okay? First of all, notice, it's clear that what is at the top of Paul's mind, and therefore what the Holy Spirit is trying to get across to us today, is that in the gospel of Jesus, God has demonstrated, or he has manifested, he's revealed his righteousness, and Paul's basically putting flesh on the bones of the, his thesis statement back in chapter 1, verse 17. Remember that, that the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, from faith to beginning to end. Now, in, in these verses, verses 21 to 26, Paul is kind of showing us how this thing works. Hopefully, as we read the text, you noticed how many times Paul used the term, the righteousness of God, or God's righteousness. Friends, even the word justified in verse 24 and just and justifier in verse 26 are from the same root word for righteous in the Greek. Sinners who fall short of God's glory are righteous, we might say. They are justified by God as a gift. They're given the gift of a righteous standing before him. Another thing you notice as you read this passage is that this righteousness of God is not something backstage, is it? It's not private. No, it's very much front stage as a public display of his righteousness. So verse 21, it has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Again, public. Verse 25, sinners are justified because God did what? He put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation. Verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, this was to show God's righteousness. Again, I'm just making the point. Not only is righteousness the theme, the public display of it is very much front 
and sinner. What seems to be controlling the, the kind of the controlling thought in Paul's mind is that in the cross work of Jesus Christ, what it does is is God publicly demonstrating and even vindicating his righteousness. It proves that God is in the right when he saves sinners who are unrighteous. Remember, friends, this, this phrase, the righteousness of God, has, has several different shades of meaning in Romans. And I, and I think this passage is an instance where there are actually slightly different shades of meaning contained uh, in this passage itself for the word righteousness. Look at verses 21 to 24. It's clear that the righteousness of God that Paul's talking about is God's saving righteousness, right? The righteous standing that God freely gives to sinners by grace through faith. That's why these verses are so sweet, right? And life-changing. That's why verse 25 arrested the heart of William Cooper. Why I pray it might do the same for you this morning. Because it broadcasts the stunningly good news that rebels and traitors against God, you and me, can be restored and forgiven and welcomed back into fellowship with God. That's what the cross does. But then starting in verse 25, when Paul writes, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Well, then the emphasis is not so much on what God gives, but who God is. God proves himself to be in the right by giving us his righteousness. No one will be able to hurl accusations at God for just kind of winking at sin or sweeping sin under the rug of eternity because that's not what he did at all, is it? He didn't just let bygones be bygones, not at all. Instead, he judged sin entirely by punishing another in our place. So friends, as glorious as this text is, by just taking that flyby of it, it's clear that this text is not primarily about you and me. As much as Romans 3, 21 to 26 is good news for us, like incredibly good news, it's not primarily about us. Yes, it reveals God's salvation for us, but only by first showing how God glorifies himself in rescuing us. So it makes total sense, doesn't it, that the implication Paul gives in verses 27 to 31 have to do with humility (laughs) in light of this good news. We have no room to boast. Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea. If I could just kind of summarize chapter 3, 21 to 31, there's a whole lot there, but let's just make it concise, right? Your rescue from sin through the cross of Christ has everything to do with God and nothing to do with you. Friends, your rescue from sin through the cross of Jesus Christ, well, it has everything, like 100% to do with God and nothing to do with you. You bring nothing to the table to save yourself. Friends, I'm going to divide up this text into three parts this morning. First of all, I think we see the natural flow of the text, number one, in verses 21 to 25. The cross demonstrates God's righteous gift. The cross demonstrates God's righteous gift. Number two, in verses 25 and 26, the cross vindicates God's righteous character. So it demonstrates God's righteous gift. It vindicates God's righteous character. And then the implications there at the end, the cross eliminates our right to boast. Beloved, this is one of the high water portions of the entire Bible. And I pray it will cause our hearts to sing this morning, that we would just be overwhelmed by how gracious and how merciful our God is, that our boast would be in Him alone. Number one, the cross demonstrates God's righteous gift. Friends, because this passage is just so packed, so dense, I'm going to give you some subpoints that I hope will help kind of organize things in our mind, okay? How does the cross demonstrate God's righteous gift? Number one, letter A, as a pivotal moment in history. As a pivotal moment in history. Notice verse 21 again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Friends, when Paul writes, but now, I don't think it's merely a shift in his argument. He's highlighting a shift in salvation history. In history, God has intervened when all seem lost. But now, 
You can even uh, kind of sense this through Paul's verb tense there. The righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been shown, demonstrated. This took place in a specific moment of time in the past. What's he talking about? Well, clearly he's referencing the coming of Jesus Christ into the world and most specifically the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. And friends, if I, uh, if Paul were writing uh, Romans 3 today, I, I think he w- would write apart from the law in all caps to get our attention. What God has done to grant his righteousness to unrighteous people is 100% apart from the law. Again, something is pivoting in the history of salvation. Something big is happening in God's plan of redemption. What Paul's saying is, hey, listen, the old covenant with its law package, the Ten Commandments, even the sacrificial system itself, these things were not what fully reveals the righteousness of God that saves. What those things do most clearly is simply expose our need for a Savior, exposes our need for God's righteousness. Remember, Paul had just written in verses 19 and 20, Look, scan your eyes there, that there's no way for anyone to be justified, to be made right with God by their efforts to keep the law. Why? Because no one can obey it perfectly. In fact, far from it, it just so happens that we're experts in law-breaking. What the law does is expose the fact that we're sinners. And so that's why Paul writes at the end of verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge, like the experiential knowledge of sin. But now, Paul writes, God's righteousness that saves is manifested, it's revealed totally apart from the law. He wants us to see, yes, yes, the Old Testament attests to it, right? It bears witness to it. He doesn't want us to miss the fact that the law and the prophets promise and foreshadow the coming salvation in Christ, yet the Old Covenant was never meant to provide the ultimate solution to our sin problem. Instead, how is God's righteousness revealed? How are unrighteous sinners declared righteous? Well, that leads us to the next step in Paul's thinking. Letter B, the cross demonstrates God's righteous gift for all who receive it through faith. See that in verse 22. This righteousness that God manifests apart from the law is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus the Messiah, the resurrected King, our only hope for rescue from our sins is to place our faith in in him. You know, friends, I think a lot of times those in the world around us misunderstand Christianity. They misunderstand us as Christians when we use the term faith. Uh, To many, faith is just simply kind of an emotional crutch for Christians to, to lean on instead of having to deal with the true realities in the world that we can see with our eyes. To them, it's kind of no different than those who put their faith in karma or put their faith in reincarnation or put their faith in the the power of crystals, right? It's like the spiritual version of the power of positive thinking. To have faith is to believe in something that isn't real, but we believe like it is. It's kind of like believing in Santa Claus. Yeah, you can believe it if you want, right? If it makes your life better, if it helps you, feel free to believe. That's great. So to many, faith is kind of a, a flimsy and weak and fragile idea. But friends, that is not at all how the Bible presents saving faith, is it? Faith in Jesus is not wishful thinking or even hoping something to be true. It's reliance on real facts in human history. Friends, faith is trusting what that Jesus did, well, that what Jesus did in time and space during his incarnation is our only hope. Faith is trusting that he really did walk this earth living the entirely righteous life that we couldn't live, that he really did die the death that we deserve on the cross. He really did rise on the third day to demonstrate that sin and death have been truly conquered forever for those who trust him. No, faith is evidence-fueled reliance on Christ, the resurrected king. It's not uh, weak and flimsy at all. Whimsy is a good word too. It's not whimsy. (laughs) It's not weak and flimsy at all. It's strong and firm and reliable. No, in many sense, you could illustrate faith by my leaning upon this pulpit. This, I can kind of lift this pulpit, so if it moves, we're going to have some fun. But friends, I, I, an example of faith is just me placing my entire weight on this pulpit to hold me up. I'm tempted to just jump on it just to make the point, but I think I'll, I'll not do that. 
But that's what faith is. It's a sturdy thing. It's a firm thing. It's trusting Jesus to bear the weight of our salvation. It's reliance on Him and Him alone to save. It's coming with the empty hands of faith and saying, Jesus, I cannot save myself. I know I'm a sinner. I need you to rescue me. I need you to save me from what I deserve. I believe the gospel. My life is yours. But notice Paul's emphasis in verses 22 to 24 isn't merely that God's righteousness must be received through faith in Jesus. His point is that it's available to all who trust in Christ. The scope of this saving righteousness isn't confined to the Jews. It's not confined to one nationality or ethnicity. It's for all. Look at verse 22 again. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. It sounds kind of redundant, doesn't it? Right? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, if you're reading Greek, it actually looks even more similar because the words translated faith and belief, they're from the same word. So it literally could be translated through trust in Jesus Christ for all who trust. Through belief in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But it's really not redundant because what Paul is emphasizing is the all. He wants to make sure that we understand the universal scope of God's righteousness that saves. It's indiscriminate. It's available to all who come to him through faith. By the way, this truth that the righteousness of God is universal, that's given to all who believe, well, friends, this is one of the ways that the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the world through his offspring by sending Jesus the King. Salvation is for all. The gospel of Jesus, it cuts across all ethnic barriers and boundaries. It saves Jews and Gentiles alike. There's no ethnic distinction or bias when it comes to who God saves. It's available to all. Why? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Aha, there's the echo of Paul's previous argument, isn't it? Paul sums it all up. He ties a nice bow on it right? And then he hitches it to God's purpose to save. All are under sin. All are condemned. All need God's righteousness. All are savable. You know, in the past when I've explained the concept of Romans 3.23, I've used the example or the illustration of two men standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon who try to outjump one another to make it across to the other side, Right? One jumps eight feet because he's pretty strong and and athletic. The other only jumps four feet because he's a little out of shape. But friends, both come miserably short, like, what, hundreds of thousands of feet short from making it to the other side, and they they plummet to their death at the bottom of the canyon. That's what it's like trying to earn God's glory with our good works. No matter how far we jump, we fall short. And don't get me wrong, that, that's, a, that's a great illustration. I, I like that illustration uh, just for how inept and silly trying to earn righteousness is. Uh, but the word translated fall short is actually the word for lack. In this case, Paul's not so much saying that we've all jumped and come up short of God's glory, but that we all lack the glory of God. Why? Well, remember his argument in Romans 1. We've exchanged, haven't we? The glory of God for lesser glories of idols. We lack the necessary glory to inherit eternal life in our sin. We resemble what we revere. We become what we worship. And our glory is now patterned after this cheap knockoff glory of ourselves and other humans and animals and money and sex and fame and success and all the other things that our heart worships. Our glory is diminished. No amount of TLC can restore the glory we've lost because what we've lost is the perfect reflection of our God. Our only hope is to be united by faith to someone else who perfectly reflects our God. Our only hope is Jesus. The cross demonstrates God's righteous gift as a pivotal moment in history. 
because it's received by faith by all. And number three, letter C, because Jesus satisfied God's wrath. It's the third step in Paul's argument, because Jesus satisfied God's wrath. Look at verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Friends, this is the white hot center of the gospel right here. That wretched sinners like you and me are justified by God's grace as a gift through the work of Christ. I want you to pause just for a second. I want you to think about your sins. I want you to think about your past sins before you became a Christian. I want you to think of your current struggles with sin, even as you you seek to become more like Christ, your indwelling sin. Friends, what what the scripture is saying is is that proud, lusting, fornicating, angry, worrying, gossiping, greedy, coveting, unkind, unforgiving sinners like you and like me can be declared by God to be totally righteous in all those ways, in all those areas. As if we'd never once sinned in our actions, in our words, or our thoughts. Remember, when Paul writes that that we sinners are justified by his grace as a gift, that's the same root word as the word righteousness. You might say that justification is God's way of righteousing the righteous, the unrighteous, righteousing the unrighteous. Remember, it's a legal or a forensic idea. It's, It's like a law court where the judge hands down the verdict of the one who's on trial. Friends, being justified by God It's the opposite of being condemned by him. Instead of being judged for our sins, we are justified by his grace. Both are verdicts that God will hand down on the last day at the final judgment, guilty or innocent, righteous or unrighteous, justified or condemned. It's a legal declaration about our status before God. So what does Paul mean when he says we are justified freely by God's grace? Well, he means that God has brought that final verdict that he will pronounce on the last day. He has brought it into time and space so that now it's a current reality for our current status before him. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ now. There's just as much, listen to this, Just as much as Christ is in the right before God, we who are united to him by faith are in the right before God because God has declared us to have the standing that Christ has earned. Well, how does this take place? Look at verse 24. Paul says it so clearly. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, there's another word that doesn't mean what people think it does right? Redemption. In modern lingo, it usually means something like a second chance, right? He redeemed himself for his mistake. Uh, The Suns got redemption from their embarrassing playoff loss to the Mavericks by beating them the next year, right? That's what we think of redemption as meaning. But redemption in the Bible isn't a second chance. Redemption in the Bible is being set free by a price that's paid. Whereas justification is a word from the courtroom, redemption is a word from commerce. It refers to freedom from slavery after someone pays the price of a ransom. And the most obvious reference point is the Old Testament in the Exodus, right? Where God redeemed, the scripture says, God redeemed his people from their slavery in Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. He judged Egypt, the enslavers, while saving his people, the enslaved. Remember, Paul in chapter 3, he wrote that all humanity is what? It's under sin. We are under sin's oppressive, dominating force. We could do nothing to save ourselves or pay sin's price. And so what the scripture says is that God, our Redeemer, set us free through the work of his Son. The redemption is in Christ Jesus. It's accessed by all who are united to Jesus by faith. Jesus' death on the cross released us from the eternal penalty of our sin. How? 
How did Jesus' death accomplish this? Well, he tells us in verse 25. We're declared righteous through God's grace by the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, friends, stay with me, okay? I know that this is heavily dense and theological, okay? Because if justification and redemption aren't big enough words, here's an even bigger 50-cent theological word. What does propitiation mean? Well, let me wade in the weeds for just a second, okay? Uh, The etymology of the word propitiate is actually from a Latin word meaning to appease or satisfy or make favorable. It's a word that was used in ancient contexts for the appeasement of of the wrath of a deity. And, And many have protested that this simply can't be what Paul meant. There's no way, right? As if God is some vengeful, unhinged, bloodthirsty deity that needs to be placated. And I would concur, that is not at all what Paul meant, right? God is not vengeful, unhinged, or bloodthirsty. But friends, he is holy and righteous and just and full of perfect love. And the only way that he can continue to be such is by eternally opposing sin and eternally judging those who commit it. Friends, Paul picked this word propitiation intentionally deliberately to capture the beauty of what God has done. The Greek word translated propitiation is the same word used in the Old Testament for the word mercy seat. We read it today in Leviticus 16. The mercy seat in the Old Testament was the gold lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then the temple. On each side of the mercy seat were two cherubim facing each other with their wings touching. The scripture tells us that it was above the mercy seat that God's special presence dwelled among his people. And then once a year, on the day of atonement, the high priest of Israel would, would enter this holy place and he would, he would sprinkle the blood of a slain bull and then of a slain goat on the sides of the mercy seat as an act of symbolizing atonement for the people. They deserve to die because of their sins. But instead, God accepted the sacrifice of animals in their place, quenching his justice and wrath for their sins. Year after year after year, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Friends, do you see what the beauty, do you see the beauty of what Paul is saying? He's already told us that God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. The sacrificial system of the old covenant is done. Why? Because Jesus is the mercy seat for the new covenant. He is the place where God accomplished the ultimate and final propitiation. In fact, friends, Jesus is not merely the mercy seat, is he? Jesus is the high priest and he's the sacrifice too. He offered the sacrifice He is the sacrifice, and he is the place where God's eternal wrath for sins is satisfied. Friends, on the cross, God reconciled, or excuse me, on the cross, Christ Jesus reconciled God to man. His sacrifice in the place of sinners satisfies God's holy and just anger completely. It's the wrath quencher. That's what the cross is. So now, for those who trust in Christ, the sword of God's justice is sheathed forever for those united to him by faith. And if that's not beautiful enough, don't miss what Paul says. It's not like Jesus is some contracted third party brought in to mediate this relationship. No, look what the text says. Who is it that ultimately propitiates wrath? Who is it? According to the text, verse 25. It's God himself. Verse 25 spells it out. God, out of nothing but his own great love, put forward Christ Jesus, the divine and incarnate son, to propitiate his wrath for all who would trust in Jesus by faith. Friends, God is both the subject and the object of propitiation. He is the one who propitiates, and he is the one who is propitiated. God's love is jaw-dropping and staggering, not merely because he's responded to us in love, 
It's kind of, you know, a save the day rescue. No, because he initiates and carries out everything. We did not move toward him. He moved toward us. He put forward Christ Jesus. Only God can satisfy his own wrath. And only a man can represent us and be an adequate substitute to satisfy the demands of justice for human sin. And God accomplished both of these requirements when he put forward Jesus, the God-man, to justify us. Salvation is free, but its cost is beyond description. It's free to us at the expense of Jesus dying in our place and satisfying God's wrath for our sin. Friends, if you're here not a Christian this morning, I hope you'll realize that this, this cost of justice, it must be paid. The moral fabric of the universe, God's character demands it. It's either by Jesus for all who rely upon him, or it will be by you for all eternity. So why incur the wrath of God in eternal hell when Jesus has taken it for all who believe? I pray you'll trust in Christ today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when's the last time you just took some time to contemplate the love of God that justified you? How much do you think about the cross? Is it something you regularly bring to the forefront of your mind or do you just, do you just kind of assume it? Does it kind of just stay at the, at the margins of your thinking? And then, well, we know about the cross. That's, that's you know, it's, it's Christianity 101. How much do you meditate on the glories of Calvary? I think often we as Christians are tempted to think about the cross merely in terms of the forgiveness of our sins. And sure enough, God in Christ has pardoned us. He has forgiven us entirely. But as wonderful as the forgiveness of sins is, friends, justification goes way past that. Justification isn't merely the forgiveness of your sins. It's the granting to you of a new status before God. It's a restored relationship with him. One pastor put it like this. It's beautiful. The voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty your sin deserves. But the verdict, which means acceptance, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and presence. Sometimes I think we as Christians, we, we think that because of our sin, because of our struggle on a daily basis with sin, that, that God merely tolerates us. He, he, he welcomes us into his presence, but when he does, he's kind of holding his nose from our spiritual BO, right? Okay, go ahead and pray now, right? Go ahead and worship me. I've moved far enough away from you. It's like he'd rather us stay in the far corner of his throne room so we don't embarrass him too much. I wonder if that's how you approach God, sheepish, reluctant, ashamed. Friends, the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ changes everything. It means that God in Christ has given you a new status like Jesus has. It's not merely that your record of unrighteousness has been credited to him on the cross. It's that Jesus' record of righteousness has been credited to you so that when you come into God's throne room, when you enter his presence, he sees you decked out in the spectacular righteousness of his son. The aroma that he smells is not the aroma of your spiritual B.O. It's the aroma of Jesus' spotless righteousness. Don't think that because you still wrestle with sin that you somehow have to clean yourself up by your performance in order for God to unplug his nose. Yesterday was a bad day. Need a good day before I can pray again. No, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are justified. And what that means is that you are you have as much right to be in God's presence as Jesus does. That's unbelievable. So don't hide in shame. 
Don't run away in fear. Don't let the enemy tell you lies about yourself and lies about God's posture towards you. Friends, preach the gospel to yourself. Confess your sin with the confidence that they're forgiven in Jesus and turn away from them and trust in Christ afresh. The cross demonstrates God's righteous gift. Number two, the cross vindicates God's righteous character. In the middle of verse 25, Paul kind of pivots to show us that what God has done in Christ, not only is the way he shows mercy to sinners, well, it's also the way that he maintains his own righteousness. Let's pick it up right in the middle of verse 25. All of this work, Christ's work on the cross, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, most of us actually don't think about the fact that the forgiveness of our sins, it raises a massive theological problem, like massive. We think that forgiveness is just what God does. Well, of course that's the way it is. God has to forgive. That's his job. Friends, Paul doesn't believe that, does he? God didn't owe us a righteous standing before him through the work of Christ, or apart from the work of Christ, I should say. He owed us a condemned standing before him. He owed us a damned standing before him. That's what we deserve. So Paul's point here is that God is the center of the universe, not us. God is the point of reference, not us. Justice must be served. If God grants forgiveness without an accounting for rebellion against him, well, then he would cease to be just. And that means he would cease to be God. And the entire universe would unravel at the seams. There is no salvation if God doesn't save in a righteous way. And what's in Paul's mind especially are those whom God has pardoned in the past. You see that? He writes... Uh, that the cross shows God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he had passed over what? Former sins. In other words, God was, was righteous, Paul says, for leaving the sins committed before the cross to go unpunished. They went unpunished, and yet he was still righteous. Well, how does that work? How is God righteous to have pardoned lying Abraham? How is he just to have forgiven angry Moses and fearful Gideon and sexually immoral and murderous David and on and on and on with the thousands and thousands of Old Testament believers? How? Here's the logic. I think what he's saying, if we could kind of Tease Paul out here. He would be saying something like this. The blood of animals did not atone by themselves. The Old Testament sacrifices were only valid in God's mind based on the future sacrifice of Jesus Christ that fulfilled all those types. It's kind of like purchasing an item on credit, right? So when my car needs gas, I go nowhere but Costco. Okay, if I have to go anywhere else, it's a bad day. Okay, I go to Costco for gas. Uh, and when I get there, I do not pay cash. I don't pay the money I have on the spot. I swipe my credit card. But I still get the gas, right? Because I've purchased it on credit. But what happens is about a month later, guess what happens? I, yeah, I get, uh, I get a, uh, a bill from uh, MasterCard with the Costco credit card saying that I owe whatever I bought at Costco. I owe the credit card company. I've got to pay what I owe. And I think that's kind of like what Paul is saying. Just like I swipe my card, so Old Testament believers offered sacrifices to God in faith. Just like I fill up my tank and get the gas, so they receive genuine forgiveness of sins. Just like I eventually pay my bill, so Christ received their bill and paid their sin debt in full at the cross. God remains just because Jesus is the propitiation for their sins and for yours if you trust in him. So how can God give sinners a righteous verdict while he himself remains righteous? Well, the way God does it is by putting forward his son to die on the cross. 
Friends, we need to understand this. Without the cross, the justification of the unrighteous, it would be unjustified and immoral. But because of the cross, God remains just and he becomes the merciful justifier of all who have faith in Jesus. The hymn we sang this morning perfectly sums it up. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You say, John, how does the Lord want me to respond? These are, these are deep truths. How, how do I respond about God's vindication of his own righteousness and saving sinners like me? Well, I think verses th- 27 to 31 tell us. Number three, the cross eliminates human boasting. It eliminates human boasting. Look again at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By what kind of principle? By a, a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul saying, listen, if God has glorified himself in this way through the cross, then, then a claim to spiritual confidence in anything else other than Jesus is just total foolishness. Paul says, look, the benefits of Christ's death are received by faith. It's by trusting something outside yourself, not in your own obedience. Your obedience cannot save. Christ's obedience and sacrifice saves. You see here how Paul places faith as the polar opposite of pride? You see that? He says, what becomes of our boasting? It's by the, the work of the law? He said, no, it's by the, or the law of works. He said, no, it's by the law of faith. Friends, faith is not a work that we do, right? Faith is not the Christian version of works. It's not the Christian version of works-based salvation. When we say we believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, friends, it's just another way of saying we believe in the the doctrine of justification by Christ alone. Your salvation is not a partnership between you and God where God contributes the cross and you contribute your faith, and that's how you're saved. No, faith is a gift. And besides that, The only value of our faith is not that you have it. The only value of our faith is the object of our faith. It's in Jesus. John Stott wrote, Faith is the eye that looks to Christ. It's the hand that receives this free gift. It's the mouth that drinks the living water. Puritan pastor Richard Hooker said this, God justifies the believer, not because of the worthiness of his belief but because of his worthiness that is believed. Of all people, we Christians should be marked by this type of sweet humility. Every ground for spiritual pride has been pummeled into the dust by the cross. In fact, the only thing that we brought to the table in our salvation, it's our sin. God did the rest. And so all our glory and confidence and boasting is in God, not in ourselves. Paul continues in verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law which I understand to mean the, the moral requirements of the law, which is even fulfilled in the law of Christ. Friends, the cross not only eliminates boasting in what we do, Paul says it, it eliminates boasting in who we are. The, doctor, the doctrine of justification by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone means, as we often say, at the foot of the cross, there's level ground. Jews and Gentiles, old and young, male and female, Black and white, blue collar and white collar, rich and poor, all who believe in Jesus belong to the same family and eat at the same table. All. Friends, this is why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we celebrate it at the same time. 
in the same way. We don't run ahead of one another. We don't give preferential treatment to one demographic over another. Why? Because we're all recipients of the same grace in Christ. No one is better than the other. Our God is the God of all. He justifies through faith in Christ. Paul says he is one in verse 30. He's unified and consistent in himself and so that the way that he saves is the same for all. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. See, friends, these deep doctrines we've been talking about today, these, these kind of thick truths of the gospel, they have profoundly practical effect. Paul says, here's how you work these things out in your life. Cross-fueled humility and cross-fueled love in unity for others in the body of Christ. Friends, Redeeming Grace Church ought to be a place where we are eager to forgive those who wrong us. Let's just get real. How dare we hold a grudge against one whom God has justified? How dare we refuse to forgive a repentant brother or sister whom God has forgiven? Because of the cross, our church ought to be a place where the unlikeliest of relationships bloom and grow. Why? Because the one thing we have in common is far more powerful than all the things that we don't. There's nothing more compelling to a watching world than the community of the justified relating to one another in light of the cross of Christ. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more compelling than blood-bought believers singing together and praying together and serving one another and discipling each other and evangelizing together and on and on the list goes. But friends, the degree to which we give that compelling witness will be the degree to which each one of us pushes the truths of the cross of Jesus deep into every nook and cranny of our lives until it shapes our thoughts and our words and our actions, our responses to one another. Your rescue from sin through the cross of Christ has everything to do with God and nothing to do with you. And that gives us hope and it should produce humility. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for a passage as glorious and beautiful as Romans 3, 21 to 31. Well, Father, it is a dense passage, but I, Father, I pray that it would have full effect in our hearts and lives. Father, that we would glory in the cross of Christ, that we would boast in you alone. Well, Father, that if someone is here today that has never uh, accepted Christ Jesus, does not know the righteousness that is a gift uh, from you by faith in Christ, Lord, today might be the day that they step forward and put their faith in Jesus, that they might depend and rest and rely fully upon Him to save. Well, Father, for us as Christians, I pray that we would go away today singing, singing with hearts full because of what the man of sorrows has done for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.